Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedrico and Daniel Coca. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. This is the first of a four-episode series where we dive into the digital asset space, starting with blockchain, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, tokenization, and how real estate fits into this growing digital paradigm. Our first guest today is Adam Lack, co-founder and CEO of Cloudfire Capital. Cloudfire Capital is the general partner to the CFC Bitcoin Fund, which provides indirect and diversified exposure to the digital asset investment space with a particular focus on Bitcoin. Adam is very passionate about informing others about the unique advantages to investing in this burgeoning industry. In this episode, we talk about remaining informed about cryptocurrency happenings, avoiding being an accidental investor. We talk about how Bitcoin is quickly gaining traction and legitimacy, especially with financial institutions and governments showing interest. We talk about the significance of witnessing the burgeoning of a new asset class in our lifetime and how to view Bitcoin. Is it an asset? Is it a currency? and the benefits of investing directly into Bitcoin or a Bitcoin fund versus investing into Bitcoin trusts. Although it's not tangible like real estate, one could argue that there are many factors that make cryptocurrency an attractive alternative investment, and we certainly get into it with Adam. All right, Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, well, thanks so much for taking some some time. I know that your day as a hedge fund manager and trader is very, very busy. I'm always looking at those charts and those graphs. So I definitely appreciate you um, taking the time. And I thought a really good way to begin would be to have you tell our listeners a little bit about your story and, and really where you started in investing, because you've been investing um, for a long time, and then how that morphed and led you into the uh, blockchain and Bitcoin space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as as you already know, I was I was into real estate fa- fairly heavy. You know, starting around 2010-ish, I had a partner who was a doctor here locally, and we did a lot of single-family home-related stuff. So either flip, uh, flips, or you know, just renovations and rents. I have a couple investments with like outside third-party entities, but as far as like what we did here is most mostly single-family. Did that until fairly heavily until about 2015-ish. 2015 is when I got involved in in cryptocurrency very heavily, and I feel like when your attention is kind of pulled in a certain direction, whether you want it that way or not, that's kind of where all your resources as an energy goes. So starting in 2015, 16, we started kind of phasing, I started phasing out my involvement with real estate, you know, aside from 
professional funds that that were you know managed on the side but as far as what we did because that's a lot of work obviously you know flipping homes or you know having rental properties and keeping up with them and make the maintenance and everything else so yeah i got involved heavily into crypto in 2015 and then that just started eating up all my time and resources. Now, at the time, I was still working my normal job. Like I still had a, a nine to five, a corporate job that I was still working all through when we did real estate. And then the first few years that I was involved with cryptocurrency, it wasn't until like 2018 ish that I went out on my own and started kind of working for myself. You know, my first venture was kind of a consultancy firm. And then that kind of expanded and grew and evolved until we launched Cloudfire Capital, which was like late 2019, early 2020. So just in time to get caught by the pandemic as we were picking up steam. So that was kind of where I made the tr transition. It was like 2015 16. And then the next few years is, is honestly like a blur of just learning and taking in as much as I possibly could on the space. And I know I've said this to you before, Adapia, it's like, it probably took me a good three years of researching before I even felt comfortable, like really putting myself out there and kind of going heavy into the cryptocurrency space. Yeah. I mean, I, for those who don't know, Adam knows this because he and I are in, in the space together a little bit, but I first invested in Bitcoin in 2013, just <laughs> kind of by accident, honestly. And, and I just kept it because I didn't know anything about it other than at the time, a lot of people were talking about it. I saw it rise in 2017. I saw it crash. I didn't do anything because I thought, you know, it was just a little bit of money that I put in to begin with. And I had no idea what was what was going on. And then towards the back half of last year, it just started exploding. And I feel like, and I've started to to want to learn more because I don't want to just be an accidental investor, right? I, and, and I think a lot of people are seeing, and this is why we wanted to talk to you today is like to, to help everyone understand, like, you know, there was the rise and fall. There was the rise and fall. We've had two big ones in 2013, 2017. And now there's been another big rise and kind of a big crash in, in, in the spring. And so as investors, especially people that, that are listening to this, a lot of us are real estate investors. And how is one to understand what is going on in this space? You know, why, why is it seeming this time around to be something that might actually be here to stay? Because that's how I feel about it is like, maybe this time it's actually real. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there's definitely, it feels different this time, but I've also felt that previously. But I think what the biggest, the biggest difference in this cycle, so when we're talking about cycles, we're talking about the post-having cycle, right? So we're talking about, you know, for people who don't know, when Bitcoin's supply gets halved approximately every four years, and the supply, the new supply being introduced into the market is cut in half, obviously that decrease in supply is gonna have an effect on price, no matter what you're talking about. So typically when we see that 
happen, it, it's about a year or so after the having, well, anywhere from six to 12 months after the actual having takes place. But I think this time around, we're seeing what everybody was hoping for in 2017, which was these institutions getting involved. So you have these traditional financial institutions who are kind of coming out, getting involved in Bitcoins, you know, especially, but also other aspects of the ecosystem, you know, decentralized finance, altcoins, NFTs. So that was something that was kind of like a pipe dream in 2017. And lo and behold, it starts happening in 2020 and 21. I always feel like the best analogy that I've ever heard for what Bitcoin is and, and why it's so significant, like this time around, someone once said, Bitcoin was a solution in need of a problem. And I feel like the events that unfolded in early 2020 and over the past year and a half, that is the problem. Like we have, you know, central banks completely gone off the reservation printing exorbitant amounts of money or creating exorbitant amounts of money introducing it into the financial system you have traditional stock markets that are continuously hitting new all-time highs every week there's no correlation between the realistic recovery associated with the virus and kind of what's going on in these traditional markets because they're so artificially propped up by central bank policies uh, and things like that. So I feel like because of the events over the past year and a half, that's why Bitcoin is just so significant now. And when you break it down and look at it, when you look at how has Bitcoin performed over the past year and a half comparable to traditional markets or other investments, Bitcoin is the only thing that's really kept pace given the amount of new capital that's been introduced into the economy. Bitcoin has continued to perform nonstop, whereas, you know, traditional markets have have really just barely been able to kind of maintain when you really take into account all this new capital. So I think, I just think the events over the past year and a half is, have really given us perspective on why this is important, why a decentralized um, monetary instrument is important, and why you know, it's going to be here over the next decade and probably many decades to come. So let me ask you a question, Adam. You know, when yeah. I first got into this space, I, I kind of, I went back and forth between, you know, two sides of my brain. The, the sign that said, hey, I'm, I'm making the same argument that you're making about why it's important, how, you know, mass adoption hasn't hit yet. You know, people and institutions are going to flood into this space. And then on the other side, I'm like, well, here are the, 10 reasons why this isn't going to work, why it's not stable, why there's so much uncertainty. And so if I'm an individual who doesn't have a strong technical understanding of, of cryptocurrencies in this landscape, how do I toy with those two things, especially when I see all of the volatility in this space, everything in the media just makes me think, wow, like, I don't know what's going on, right? And, you yeah. know, I fall in the first camp of, you know, I support it, but that's in large part because I'm invested in it. And, I'm an optimist and I want it to be the case, right? But if you ask me personally, I view it as a bit of a gamble. It's it's a dice roll, you know, it's money I'm okay losing if it ends up disappearing, but I'd much rather it 10x, you know, if that, right. that's on the table. Right. No, I hear you. And I, I think the first time, like 
Adapia, what you were saying about be, becoming involved in the space in 2013, I mean, that's pretty early. I mean, that was eight years ago. That's that's a pretty early time to become involved. And I know the first time I was approached and, and it was a coworker of mine, and this was like 2012. And he was like, we should get involved in Bitcoin. We should. And my first thought was, this makes no sense. I don't understand how it's going to stand the test of time. Where's the value coming from? What if the government doesn't like it? Regulators don't like it. And so my first instinct was to brush it off and say, I, it's not for me. It's not, you know, I'm a real estate person. Real estate is something tangible that you can put your hands on and always appreciate some value. And yeah, it's a lot of work, but it's not it's not as risky, but I feel like that's almost everybody's knee-jerk reaction when they're first introduced to cryptocurrency. Then as you learn, as you really do dive into the technical aspects of it and kind of the creation of Bitcoin, why it was created, you know, what the significance of Satoshi Nakamoto's vision was when he created Bitcoin, it starts to open up the floodgates of like, hmm, Maybe there's something here. Maybe, maybe there maybe there was a problem in in the mid early and mid 2000s, and maybe that problem hasn't been rectified. Maybe we're still in the midst of this problem, and they've just gotten better at hiding it. So I feel like when you get into that, it's like it it opens the door to all these possibilities. But in the end, I feel like you don't really have. To you, it's good to understand the technicals. And by all accounts, you know, I've spent probably the equivalent of thousands of hours, you know, kind of researching it. And I feel like in the end, it's, it's a decentralized alternative. And, you know, I hear the arguments in the other direction. And I try, you know, with, especially with our fund, especially with managing an investment fund, we try not to be biased. So we try to look at all opinions and all kind of, we look, try to look at everything in every direction and see, you know, are we making the best decision and not just being hopeful or optimistic that it goes in this direction or that. And yeah, it's volatile. I feel like how often in your lifetime are you going to see the burgeoning of a new asset class? This may be the only time for us. We may never see this again. So it's going to be volatile as it kind of enters and exits price discovery mode as it tries to find its footing in a rapidly evolving economy, global economy that has had such significant change thrust upon it over the past year and a half. So it's not even like we're in normal times, uh, quote unquote, normal times. It's not like we're, you know, in a period of time where nothing's really going on and things are kind of just, you know, hunky dory. We've been in the midst of a global, you know, pandemic for the past year and a half at this point. So I feel like all bets are off at this point. Anything can happen. As far as the institutions getting involved, that's good and bad. And we've said that from the beginning. There's positives with with that and there's negatives with it. And you know, the negatives are these institutions are in anything to make money. And they're not looking out for the little guy. They're not worried about retail investors. They're they're entering and exiting the market in order to make money for their investors, their shareholders, what have you. But on the other side, on the other hand, you know, that 
that has to happen in order to kind of validate the industry. And I think we continue to see more of it as time goes on, whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent, we continue to see more of it. It continues to grow. And um, I think as the decade goes on, we continue to see more use cases for kind of a decentralized substitute for a financial system. I, I, I feel like it's going to become more and more imperative for people to be involved in it. So, so I have like a, a, a couple of, of questions when you talk about like the problem is that related to what a lot of people are, are considering is going to be the devaluation of the U.S. dollar? And that's my first question. And then my second question, if you can answer it, is, is Bitcoin an asset or is it a currency? And have we landed on, on that kind of generally? Like you said, I mean, it's, we're still in the middle of it. It feels like a planet that hasn't formed yet. It's like in that nebulous, right. gassy phase. And, and so there's a lot of arguments in so many different directions. So those are two big questions that, that I have about it. I think we've, we've been witnessing the debasement and devaluing of, of all currencies, right? I think kind of across the spectrum. I mean, the US dollar has decreased, what, 99% value over the past since it's been created. I think, I believe that's the statistic. It's 97 or 99% value. So as time goes on, a reasonable person would assume it continues to lose value. And now you add into it again. I, 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 all, I often can't help myself but to go back and talk about the last year and a half. Like there's been, I feel like people kind of focus on, a lot of people focus on how did this affect me in my day-to-day -day life? And surely it did. It's affected everybody's day-to-day -day life and their activities and kind of how they function. But the behind the scenes, the behind the scenes actions of regulators and governments and central banks, that's, that's where the real activity is. And I, you know, a lot of people don't focus on that, but I think it's just super important to kind of bring that into perspective because the introduction of, of you know, 23% of circulating currency brought in over the last 18 months is going to have an effect on the value of our of our dollar. That's just, that's just reality. As far as inflation, trans, I, I listened to both arguments, you know, it's transient, it will pass, you know, with, with the rapid evolution of technology, it's going to, you know, that'll introduce deflation and it'll offset inflation and, you know, it won't stick around. But I feel like at this point, are they really going to say if we have consistent inflation, are they going to come out and announce that? No, probably not they've made it pr pretty clear that they want inflation to be at 2%. That's where it'll be. So I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever get a straight answer from, you know, the, the Fed or anybody else as far as, you know, is there consistent inflation or is this just a transitory, something transitory in, nat in nature that's stemming from, you know, disruptions in supply lines and, you know, other related things from the virus. But I do think it's clear that the value of our currency is has been and will continue to be, you know, devalued. The second part of your question, remind me of the second part of your question. 
so I was asking, you know, and, and unless Dan wants to jump in too, I was saying like, is, is it an asset or a currency? Because my understanding of Bitcoin when, when it was created was it was meant to be transactional, like utility. And it is a little bit, and I know some of the problems um, that exist around it, but it seems to be at least what I've understood or currently is that it's, it's generally thought to be digital gold. It's an asset and it's not really meant to, or it won't be able to execute as a currency or a transfer um, of value. The, so yeah, a couple of things there. I, I, I think it has been both and I think it can be both. I, I would lean, obviously our, our opinion is that it's a store of value. It, you know, it's an asset to buy and hold and kind of wait for the market to do its thing. That said, I mean, if we track it, the introduction of Bitcoin in 2008, 2009, you know, it, it has to be a store of value first. First and foremost, it has to be a store of value in order to take on the characteristics of, of a monetary utensil that can be transacted with. So I feel like introduced as a store of value kind of transitions to a currency of the internet, quote unquote, transitions back to a store of value. And now it's kind of up for debate on what it is. I, you know, I hear the thoughts from people that it, it should be the currency of the internet, like Bitcoin should be the main currency of the internet. And it could function as such, especially when you bring into, you bring into context, the lightning network, you know, which is a layer that was built on top of Bitcoin to help it transact with greater speed and reliability. Can it, can it spread out and operate in that capacity across the globe? I don't know if we're there yet. I think we're going to get a good taste of it when El Salvador's Bitcoin law goes into effect in a couple of weeks here in September. And I think we'll be able to see kind of, you know, how does Bitcoin work as a payment mechanism across, you know, multiple industries in, in a larger capacity. It may take a little while to kind of take hold because they are still keeping obviously the US dollar in conjunction with Bitcoin as part of the law. But I feel like it'll give us a good idea. But there are, there have been several experiments that have been conducted over the past several years where Bitcoin has served as a as as the pretty much the primary transactional monetary tool but on on smaller scales. So it's hard to say like how it would how it would behave on a global in a global capacity. It's our it's our opinion though, you know, it's going to have to be transacted with to some extent in order for it to retain its value and continue increasing in value. I don't think it can just sit there and never never change hands and never go anywhere. But in the end, I believe it's it's it is a good analogy is digital real estate or digital gold, where you know, you're kind of investing in this with the foresight that it's going to increase in value, you know, give it enough time. And the fact of the matter is, anybody who's purchased Bitcoin and held it for at least four years has never lost money. So there's something to be said about that. If you've purchased Bitcoin and you've held it for at least four years, you've always been in the positive. Yeah, 
well, that's certainly been me, but again, kind of ac accidentally, right. Is like holding as opposed, you know, as opposed to, to trading, I'm a terrible trader, right. just so everybody knows, <laughs> it's definitely not, not what I'm good at, not what I want to be good at. It's a lot of work, just like, you know, in our space, it's a lot of work to do what we do. And unless you have the time and you have the expertise, like you, or you really are passionate about it and, and you want to get into it, then you know, having somebody that does that for you, especially in a rapidly changing environment, I think is, is really important. And that's where I've landed on all of this. And I wanted to actually just, just to touch on one thing that, you know, a lot of people are aware of what's going on in Afghanistan. And I don't know if a lot of people are aware that even the, the aid organizations, no one is able to get dollars like any kind of money into this country, the only thing they've been able to get into the country to help anybody is crypto. And yeah, sometimes and the Western right? Union has shut down as well, right? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So they're like, so you have to me, it's a it's a use case in a way. And whether they're using, you know, just Bitcoin or they're using something else. But I think sometimes it's might be challenging for us in this country to understand what a use case for a decentralized currency could be because we're so relatively fortunate yeah. here to have what we have and, and to have a life that we have here compared to there. But I, as I'm, you know, as I'm paying more attention to that and also how it's being used in Nigeria, it almost feels and in other African countries and in South America, it kind of feels like it's a it's a currency for financial emancipation of people that have been oppressed. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I would 100% agree with that. I think additionally, you know, as it comes to regulators in our in our country looking at it, the fact that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have been able to kind of sneak through into Afghanistan or other you know, countries in comparable situations, it adds credence to the, well, it's used for nefarious purposes. The fact of the matter is it, it's not. Less than less than 0.4% of all Bitcoin transactions are, are used for some type of illicit or illegal activity. You know, compare that to the usage of the US dollar for illicit or illegal activity. That's still the go-to currency for criminals is still the US dollar. So I feel like we should get that out of the way right off the bat. But I, I would agree with you. I think it I think it's helpful. I've seen on social media people who are in Afghanistan talking about trying to send Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies back and forth to help family, to help family escape the Taliban or just escape the situation over there. But yeah, we we have been fortunate to be to be in the country that we're in, but we've also got issues as well. I mean, I don't want to, I, I don't, I don't really want to bring in, you know, bring up the political aspects of it, but there's something to be said about how some of these quote unquote first world countries have responded to the whole virus thing. I mean, you look at Australia and they're built, they're building the equivalent of like concentration camps at this point to keep people in for various reasons, you know, so it's like, it's like at some point, something's going to have to be done to kind of get 
get everyone back on the same path. And I feel like there's just so much disconnection right now, like across the globe. And, and you know, those countries, these war-torn these war-torn countries like Afghanistan, it's a different set of problems, right? It's its a completely different set of problems that they've been encountering over the past however many decades. Um, but there's also problems in, in the first world countries as well, you know, with government and government overreach and kind of what direction are we ultimately going here? And then you kind of throw in the role of the central banks and how there's absolutely no parameters there they do what they want they prop up they prop up you know purportedly free and open markets which they're not i mean just look at any market today everybody's anticipating what is the fed going to say at jackson hole like how is that going to turn out so everything's in the red because everybody's afraid they're going to taper back on the 120 billion dollars a month in mortgage-backed security and bond purchases. Well, how is that an open market if it's only dependent on the Federal Reserve making exorbitant amounts of purchases every month? You know what I mean? So I want to circle back on something. Yeah. I think people generally, you know, they see the different use cases for, for cryptocurrencies, right? But most of the people that are listening to this, I imagine are approaching this question from an investor mindset, right? At least I know that's how I am personally. I have no intention of ever using cryptocurrency to buy anything or transact in any given way. If for no other reason, then I believe the value of it tomorrow will be greater than today. And so I'd rather make those same purchases with dollars if I can. And so if I have that type of mindset, I want to be an investor like, what would you rec recommend for people, right? Should I, you know, buy Bitcoin and Ethereum? Should I get into the one of, you know, what seems like an infinite number of other coins that exist? Like, how do I parse through this, you know, very complex and complicated world and set of options as I think about actually putting capital into the space? No, that's that's a really good question. I'm, I'm glad you asked that because there there's so much out there. There's 10,000 different cryptocurrencies out there in the ecosystem right now. And I think a lot of times people come into the space when they're new and they think Bitcoin's $48,000. That's a lot of money and I can't buy a whole one. So what I'll do is I'll go down the list and five the, find the 500th most popular cryptocurrency that's, you know, trading for 73 cents and I'll buy, you know, 10,000 of those. And if it goes up a little bit, I'm going to make a bunch of money. And I feel like that is the absolute biggest mistake. Like as far as transacting with Bitcoin, there are use cases there. Like we, we are branching out into Bitcoin mining as we speak. We're setting up our, our first batch of miners right now for our mining operation. A lot of, a lot of miner suppliers or manufacturers would like to be paid with Bitcoin. If I do that, as opposed to send a bank wire, they receive it almost instantly. Like within an hour, you know, a $50,000 purchase has been received and verified and settled. And if I do it via bank wire, it might take three or five days to get to another country and have them, you know, post to their bank account and then verify receipt of it. So there are use cases for transacting in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. I just want to put that out there because there are. I feel like it, it's better 
there's more use cases for transacting with it for larger purchases, in my opinion, right now. But as the Lightning Network kind of, you know, evolves and and spreads to more people, that might change. But that said, yeah, investing is the primary reason most people are getting into this. And I, you know, it's our belief, both personally and professionally, like with our fund, we stay away from the more obscure, lower market cap, unestablished digital assets. So we don't even, you know, things that are like back in 17, we had the initial coin offering craze where everybody, everybody was launching a coin. It was like the most, it's like NFTs now. It's like what NFT, what's happening with NFT? Everybody has an NFT. It's going to be super valuable. What's the floor on it? The floor is 200 ETH. Oh my gosh, I'm rich, blah, blah, blah. And they're all trading around in kind of similar circles. And I'm in no way saying that some of them don't have value. I'm sure that some of them do have value. I'm just saying it reminds me of what happened back in 2017. And a lot of those projects didn't make it very far. My my advice is is like twofold like a we we run a bitcoin meetup locally to kind of discuss bitcoin investing and the technicals with like a group of people that are local i would never deter someone from individually investing in bitcoin i think it's a i think it's a great thing to learn and to know how to do on your own like how do i set up wallets how do I how do I go through the KYC process for an exchange? How do I purchase and how do I you know move that to cold storage on my own? I think that's extremely important. That said, some people don't have the time or resources to do it, and that's kind of where we come in to do it for them. So I think you know investing is the main thing, but I I would always say you can't go wrong with like you know, the top half dozen cryptocurrencies, if you stick to, and I realize they're more expensive, if you're buying Bitcoin, or Ethereum, or even Litecoin, they're more expensive. But I mean, just look at Cardano, Cardano had a 200% run over four or five weeks, and it was trading at a dollar a month and a half ago. So they there still can be those, those astronomical gains in some of these more well-known and established projects, you just kind of have to, you know, bide your time, get in at the right time. But yeah, I would never suggest going down and, you know, buying more of a more obscure cryptocurrency. You can always buy a piece of Bitcoin. You can always buy uh, a piece of Ethereum, but I would, I would stick to those before I try and you know, find the next bit, the quote unquote next Bitcoin that's going to 1000x in price over the coming year, for sure. Yeah, unless you're doing that full time and that's all you're doing is you're on the discords and the telegrams and you're digging around and And maybe you you might get Cardano at five cents, but I feel like it's a real insight. It's really like insider and a lot of crypto is built on community, which is really interesting that it really needs, I'll call it retail, if you will, but it, it needs people to believe in it and to use whatever blockchain that particular project has developed in order to raise the price of it, right? Like you said, like at some point, Bitcoin needs to be transacted with for its value to continue to increase or to hold. Like these need to be used So there's this like dual their investments to hold and gain, but they need to be used in order for them to be investments. So I find that a really interesting thing. I 
I think where we are right now, because we're in such an unprecedented situation, again, going back to the past year and a half, we're in such an unprecedented situation. We have no idea how what the these central banks have done. We have no have no idea how that's going to impact us over the longer term. Is this inflation going to get out of control? Will it go back down? Are we going to see deflation? Are we going to see stagflation? Is unemployment going to continue to go? Like we have all these questions and only time is really going to give us the answer. Right now is not the time to buy a Tesla with Bitcoin or buy a house with Bitcoin, in my opinion. But 10 years from now, 10 years from now or 15 years from now, when when and if Bitcoin's at $3 million or $5 million, maybe at that point it's like, okay, I worked really hard and saved and now I want to spend, you know, what I've invested. So I'm not saying that's definitely going to happen, but I'm saying I think it's very plausible over the next decade that we see, you know, the value of Bitcoin well, well into that six figure range. I I don't think there's really any question about that. Um, It's just a matter of kind of how long does it take and what happens along the way. And so would you expect to see, you know, we obviously we saw the crash in, in 2018, and then we saw like a obviously a somewhat substantial dip that happened, you know, earlier this year. And, and my understanding from the dip this year was that it had a lot to do with the use of leverage in, in the market. And, you know, it was more of a financial engineering issue than an underlying kind of fundamental issue. But I'd be interested to hear your, your thoughts on that point specifically. Yeah, Adapi and I just had this conversation about the the crash in in May, and it was like it was coming, and we could feel it coming. And I remember, you know, we sent out a letter like the week before the the May nineteenth crash to our investors, saying we're expecting some real like kind of downward volatility here, so we're going to kind of sit on our hands a little bit, exit some investments, see what happens. And it was it was worse than we anticipated it would be, you know. All the way down to $28,000 from $64,000 high in April. I think there was a lot of things that went into that. I think the use uh, over leveraging by a lot of both retail investors and institutions. Uh, so when we had these aggressive drawdowns, especially as relates to the miners in China leaving the network. So you had all these, all these miners in China with these massive mining operations. China starts kind of you know, flicking the lights on them saying, we're going to start weeding you guys out. And then they start passing laws. So you see a massive decrease in Bitcoin's hash rate. Well, price typically follows hash rate, typically. So when you see a massive decrease in the hash rate, there's probably going to be an imminent price decrease right after that. As the price starts falling, these people who are utilizing excessive amounts of leverage, we're talking 20x, 50x, 100x leverage, they start getting liquidated. Those liquidations just cause a cascading effect across the across the entire network, and you just see the price just start to crash. Luckily, we found we found significant support in that twenty eight thousand dollar range, where it kind of bottomed three times over three months there. So you know there was, in addition to that, I think also you can't rule out manipulation. There's manipulation in every market, right? We talked about that the other day. There's manipulation takes place in gold. Manipulation takes place in the traditional markets. I think you can't rule that out. It's just a little harder to pinpoint. It's a little harder to pinpoint and say, this is where it's happening. This is who's doing it. This is why it's happening. But I think a combination of the 
of the Chinese minor exodus, excessive leverage, manipulation, all kind of played into that. And it was just, it was just, that's what was in the stars. And, and we wrote it down. And, you know, since then the trend has reversed. And, and that's what I mean when I talk about being unbiased, like in no way did we want to send a letter to our investors saying, Hey, we think this is going to get ugly, but at the same time, like we have to be realistic and be like, we were riding at 60, 58 to $64,000 for 90 days and it couldn't break through. There's a, there's a pretty good chance here that we're going to head down and, you know, it might be ugly because we didn't have any of those types of pullbacks during 2021 yet. Whereas 2017 and 18, we had several 35% plus pullbacks during that cycle. So I think it was kind of, that's just, it was coming and it was aggressive and violent. And, you know, those new people who were able to hold through that, through that May through end of July kind of episode, definitely earn their stripes as far as like being experienced cryptocurrency investors, because it's tough. It's tough, you know, when you see the value of a portfolio decrease by 60% over a matter of days or weeks. I want to ask a silly question. Allocating capital for any individual into cryptocurrency, do you view it as mandatory given, you know, what you're expecting to happen in the space over the years? And if I care about hedging against the devaluing of my dollars, is this a place where I like have to be putting my capital? I, I, yes, I think that I think that, and we think that, and I always tell, you know, like new investors that I, you know, the old, the old 60, 40 allocation is dead. And if you have a financial advisor who's just out of touch with reality and is still suggesting, you know, these old 60, 40 bond allocations or, you know, strictly traditional market, it's they're out of touch with what is currently going on. It's here to stay. We've we've seen, you know, Bitcoin's death announced by the mainstream media like 400 plus times over the last 10 years. Every time there's a big retreat, it's dead, it's done, it's never coming back, that's it, it's over. Everybody lost their money, it was a Ponzi scheme and it always rises from the ashes and goes even higher. And again, I, that's part of that price discovery mode kind of a new asset class, you know, trying to find its footing in our current investment ecosystem. But I think it's imperative given, given the asymmetrical upside and the asymmetrical risk versus reward of Bitcoin specifically, I think it's imperative that everybody owns some. I think it's imperative that everybody try to own at least one Bitcoin. Like that should be a goal. Like your goal should be how, how close can I get to one Bitcoin? Because that itself, in Adipi, we've talked about this before too, just by owning one Bitcoin puts you in such a small elite group of people that it's like, it, it's absolutely crazy. If you have more than one, you're like in the top 0.3%. So mm -hmm. if you can own one Bitcoin, that's a good place to start. That's a good place to start because I do think over the coming decade, we're going to see it, especially, you know, we have the next having in around right around 2024. 
I think following that having, we're going to see real fireworks because a lot of this central bank policy is going to kind of come to a head by that point. So I feel like we're going to see real fireworks after the next having. But I think it is, it's imperative that you have just like, if you have a truly diversified portfolio and you have, you know, investments in the traditional market and you have an IRA and a retirement plan and, you know, investments in a REIT or real estate, you need to have Bitcoin in there as well. So along those lines, actually, this is a really important question for people because there's all kinds of, I'm going to call them derivatives not direct ownership of Bitcoin. There's trusts, there's not yet ETFs, but there's equivalents. Can you speak to that a little bit? Like what are these trusts? Because there's a lot of money in those right now versus, for example, dollar cost averaging. And I dollar cost average on, on something called Swan Bitcoin because it has the lowest fees that I've been able to find. But, you know, some people that are just giving so much money into these Bitcoin trust. Like, can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different vehicles out there right now. Most are private vehicles as relates to Bitcoin, because, you know, regulation is such that it, it moves slow. And I know I hear a lot of chatter right now that we're kind of getting to the point where they may approve a Bitcoin related ETF this year. Um, but again, it's not going to be a true Bitcoin ETF because of, you know, Dan, like you said, the volatility. They're, they're going to be afraid of the volatility. So it's going to be probably a futures cash settled ETF to kind of eliminate some of that risk to investors. When we talk about things like Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, you know, Galaxy Digital, some of these other funds, there's some really big key differences here. Now with Grayscale, that's not an actively managed fund. So when you're investing in Grayscale, you're buying shares of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, typically with a discount or a premium associated, depending on where the market is in its cycle. But you're not buying the underlying asset. You're buying shares of this trust and they purchase Bitcoin, obviously, um, to place in their trust to kind of support their shares. You know, other, other funds the way a lot of other funds do it is they utilize proxies. And we talked about that before where they call it a Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency fund, but in actuality, they're buying MicroStrategy, they're buying Tesla, they're buying Riot, they're buying different things that are kind of in the cryptocurrency space or somehow associated with Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, but not the underlying asset. That's that was the big thing for us when we launched when we launched our fund was that we wanted everything integrated and we wanted to buy the underlying asset. And we had to go through a lot. We had to jump through a lot of hoops with our legal people to make that a reality because it was kind of one of those things where like this is so new. Is this a good idea? Can we do this? You know, blah, blah, blah. But that was important to us that we buy the actual underlying assets. So when we invest in things for our fund, we are buying, you know, Bitcoin. We're actually purchasing the Bitcoin, moving it into our own cold storage protocol and storing it. And then the fund obviously performs based off of somewhat based off of the performance of Bitcoin and the other assets that we hold, but we're also actively managed. So we generate 
you know, like we've talked about, we generate performance above and beyond what the market does on its own. And that's another big difference, you know, like Grayscale, for example, there is no other performance. Your shares um, directly correlate with the performance of Bitcoin in the market. So, you know, there's, you just have to be careful. You have to be careful what you're choosing and you have to choose something that's going to correlate with your your investment and risk profile, right? So if you want something that's, you know, obviously for us, you know, we are directly invested in Bitcoin and these other digital assets that we choose to hold. So there's more exposure for us as opposed to a fund that might, you know, utilize investments in Tesla or MicroStrategy or other traditional stocks that may have Bitcoin on their balance sheet or somehow be involved in the Bitcoin space, if that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely, definitely makes sense. Well, Adam, I really appreciate, we really appreciate you coming on to have this, like, this discussion all about Bitcoin and where we stand in the market today. So thank you so much for, for taking some time to just to provide so much really great insight into the multitude of aspects because it's complex. It's, it's not simple. It's very complex. So really appreciate you taking the time to, to, to walk people through some of these complexities. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. It was fun. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially, we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might've touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.